All right. I have uh, tried to write down in summary some of um, the information from get this out of my way so I'm trip on. from last week uh, as we looked at Daniel in our efforts to identify the second beast of Revelation 13. We could also add Habakkuk and a few other verses or passages, um, but uh, in our identification, well, I might roll that in here in a little bit, but uh, we saw from Daniel's little horn, remember we're talking about the second beast, the little B beast, compared to the capital B beast, which we saw as being much broader than uh, just one entity, but rather a group of entities called the nations that, in general. Seven heads reared themselves up, which we identified as seven empires, um, particularly who ruled over Israel. Not the greatest empires of all time. Uh, that would uh, Obviously, there's several not in this list that were pretty extensive, both in time and in property, in terms of real estate that they possessed. Uh, the Mongol Empire... Uh, probably comes to mind most readily, um, but and eastern other eastern di- uh, dynasties that were there. But these had in common that they gained uh, rulership over Israel, either her people or her territory or both, and that uh, the people of Israel were dependent upon them and or, and or enslaved by them. Perhaps not entirely. For example, Assyria uh, was the northern kingdom, but they did uh, have success over a great. Volume of the southern kingdom as well, but they didn't sack Jerusalem. That was put onto Babylon. Uh, they had a reprieve for a little while, then Babylon came, and then we find the succession there. Um, and we uh, identify the seventh head as the United Kingdom. And uh, it was interesting, this uh, yesterday I had the uh, uh, Chris uh, McKillop's brother's wedding yesterday, and I sat down at the rehearsal dinner and talked with. Uh, their dad, Ray, and uh, about going to Israel because Chris got married and Casey got married in Israel in the Sea of Galilee and so her, their par- his parents went with them and so they did a tour there of Israel and uh, he commented something about going into Jordan. He said, when we went into Jordan, we noticed something <clears throat> and um, all the Jordanians sounded British. And uh, when he brought that up, I thought that, well, that's true. Most of the Jordanians that I heard, they, they, and that's true in Egypt as well. Uh, If you learn English in any of those countries, uh, including India too, for that matter, any of those countries, you're not learning American English, you're learning British English along with its uh, strange sound to us. I guess we sound strange to them too. Um, With its uh, dialects. And... uh, and he, he said, yeah, when we were there, that's one thing I noticed is how British everything was. Not just in their speech, but in their mannerisms and everything. Uh, and just to give you an idea, in Jordan is where we went into the amphitheater in Amman. And that's where we had four British soldiers in full uniform with bagpipes playing Amazing Grace. Doesn't make you think of Jordan, does it? Doesn't make you think you're in Jordan. By the way, the, the uniforms looked very British. And so we forget sometimes that before World War II, uh, Great Britain really had control over the whole Middle East, um, from Egypt um, all the way up into Iraq. And, uh, um, you know, and they're the ones that set up those nation states 
uh, after the war, really, and established them. And they probably should have done a little bit better job instead of just kind of throwing a bunch of them into Iraq. Um, that probably should have been about three countries because there's three different people groups. They kind of just tossed everyone they didn't know what to do with and called them the nation of Iraq. Um, but those were all derived out of Great Britain. And so if you want to complain about the borders right now in the Middle East, um, those borders were dependent upon the United Kingdom's determination. And so uh, that was done, uh, as I said, uh, right after, in the midst of, right after, really, World War II. And so um, the United Kingdom's influence over Israel, um, they came into being as a result of really two countries, but the United Kingdom was the one that held the title deed, if you would, to the, to the real estate at the time, and uh, it was up to them to make that uh, designation. And they, of course, did that. It wasn't fully implemented. Um, it had to be uh, assisted in implementation, but it wasn't fully in- implemented in 1948. Um, right? 48? Israel comes a nation. And so um, that was born out of the United Kingdom. And so uh, we see these that had authority or power rule over Israel for a season, uh, that that's their designation. We then come to the beast, and we realize that this is not a person that we're looking for, but a final empire. And we looked last week at the Daniel's description of this empire that would be struck down by God himself. So this has to be the last one. Um, And we saw its designations. These in red are the ones that have already occurred. This one is yet to occur, and we're going to do the same thing in Revelation 13. Uh, what is already and what is still future for us to identify um, this beast. And as I said, there's probably a couple of other passages we could add into there uh, and also probably some other aspects of Daniel, but I'd rather uh, not do that. Um, I'd rather spend a little more time in Revelation 13. So what we do have in Revelation 17 that, we haven't, that we've referenced a couple of times, but I want to... Um, get us some information on it, and I'm going to go back to blue here for a reason. And um, one of the things we find out in Revelation 17 is that it is related to the seventh head. So the second beast is going to be coming out of specifically the seventh head, and it's going to be of the all seven. But the seventh head is what it's going to be born out of. And so it has a direct relationship to the seventh head, um, which we have seen as the United Kingdom. And as we talked about last week, we're really looking for a couple of different aspects um, of how it's related. It's related on two levels. Certainly there's the geopolitical head that we're looking for, what we usually think of as a nation, But then we're also looking for something that's a little more mysterious, a little more difficult to identify. Um, There's a mysterious aspect of the of the uh, resurgence, or um, as Revelation 13 says, that it came back to life. Um, That this is the one that uh, um, is going to uh, that that was was is and is. was and was not, and yet is. And so it talked about a mortally wounded uh, and was healed, and the world marveled and followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, gave authority. So when we're in chapter 13, um, we aren't 
the, the verses 4 and following really refer, I believe, to later on. Um, in, inclusive of this eighth head. Remember that the angel said that there was an eighth. And so when we talk about the, the little bee beast, the final empire, this also becomes the eighth head. Which, of course, we didn't see an eighth head initially in Revelation 13. And so what in Revelation 13 could possibly represent the eighth head? All we're left with is the second beast. And so the second beast represents another manifestation of uh, these seven heads. It's related to the seventh head, um, but it actually forms its own geopolitical unit. But it shares also this mysterious uh, secondary kind of entity or government or, or rule. And uh, we're going to see how that's played out later in Revelation 13. And so we find out that this the capital B beast um, will have this history that everyone will marvel at it. Everyone will say, who can make war with it? Um, and all along the way, it's speaking blasphemous things uh, and it's going to have authority um, to for 42 months that we are really looking toward the end for to make war in that circumstance. Um, and he speaks blasphemy against God, his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven, verse 6. Uh, and it's going to grant it to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And again, this correlation of that work of the beast correlates with this in Daniel um, with his little horn. That it's for the last three and a half years of its existence, this head will do this act. But in Revelation 13, this act is attributed to the beast, capital B. Because both of these are, of course, the same. This is just the chronological expression of this overarching term of that first beast, which represents the nations. And so both of these really, I think, correlate to the same action that's going to be held after the uh, rapture and into the seven years of God's wrath, whether that is the first seven years or first half or the last half. Um, we would more than likely contend it's going to be the last half, as we're going to see later in Revelation. Um, there's more merit to that. That we're going to have the last half will be uh, this violent action against the saints. And when we talk about the saints, we are not talking about the church necessarily. We're really talking about the people of Israel and this that are going to be turned into his hand. And we know from other passages, that there's going to be a seven-year peace treaty, that that treaty is going to be broken in the middle. That's again in Daniel, referring to the man of sin, not a nation, but a person. That there's going to be a peace treaty brokered by the man of sin. It's going to be violated halfway through, and he's going to uh, do this violence against Israel in the last half of those seven years. And so this and the event that we just read in Revelation 13, I believe, are the same, referring to the same last uh, attack on God's people. And of course it also says that uh, he'll have authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And uh, of course that really hasn't happened so far with any of the empires listed. And so that's still a future event as well. So we often think, well, Revelation 1 through 10 must be all historical because we haven't gotten to the beast. No, what we've done is we've extended the beast activity, the capital B beast, all the way to its end. 
And now we're going to back up a little bit and we're going to rehearse what's the final expression of this capital B beast. And that's going to be found in this lowercase b beast, this last geopolitical entity that um, we're looking for at the end times. And so it's a little confusing here of uh, this overlay. But if you can read 1 through 10 and then take what follows about the second beast as not being uh, uh, chronologically after all of 1 through 10, uh, we can see a really pleasant overlay with the prophecies about Daniel and, and as well as other passages, specifically Habakkuk chapter 2. And so we can find that overlay if we'll simply extend this. Here's the big picture. And now, within the big picture, let's, talk, uh, let's take a focus down to the end. And let's talk about the little bee beast, who is the eighth head, that we didn't really see uh, fully in the big picture. And that brings us uh, into uh, this uh, designation, this, this description. I'm sorry, this description. We had the description in Daniel. Um, now we have this description. We also have one on Habakkuk. We're going to reference that probably next, no, next week because next week we're not going to have a service, so two weeks. We'll more, have more reference there. So, verse 11, I saw another beast coming up, and now, even though it's another beast, it is coming up from a totally different place. And we immediately begin our record of what are we watching? What are we seeing here and let's make another list like we had Daniel's list so we can, for purposes of identification. And, and the first thing we find is, is out of the land. It comes out of the land. And this is a remarkable thing. Remember, one of the things we kept talking about last week about Daniel's little horn is how different it was. It was a different horn. It was different than anyone else. It was greater. It was younger, but it was different. Um, and it did things differently. We saw the subtleness of its persecution. Uh, we found it, its, its assault on truth and, and created order uh, and creation itself and, and God as creator. And so we saw all of the differentness about that. Now we're confronted immediately with something very different. This beast does not come out of the sea does not come out of the sands, does not come out of, of uh, uh, that, but rather comes out of the land. And there is no empire described that way that I can find in Scripture. If you can find one, I'd be glad to hear about that. Um, out of the land. This beast, this nation, is derived not by the conquering of other peoples. It is not derived and come to its power and, and influence by... Uh, overcoming other nations. When you look through these, they all did that. They all came to great power by opening their borders and extending them generally, uh, militarily. Um, we can, maybe Egypt, not militarily, maybe because of the acts of Joseph, but there was certainly a military element involved throughout our history. Uh, and the United Kingdom had, a, had a, certainly an uh, economic means, but they, the military followed them and all of that. And so um, the East India Company opened up a lot of territory for the United Kingdom, but that, if you think they had no military arm, you don't, haven't studied history well enough. Um, so I agree that there's an economic aspect to it, but to say that they didn't forcefully conquer other peoples um, is 
very poor history. So the United Kingdom did conquer those people from India and, and uh, Australia and South Africa and the Middle East and, and uh, even in the Canada and the Americas uh, and their influence there. But this nation, instead of conquering other peoples, which is how every other empire has really come to prominence, um, is by the conquering and subjugation of other peoples and taking their resources. Instead of that, this one, unlike the other ones, comes up out of the land. And the first thing we need to question is, what does that mean? Well, they're going to come to prominence not by conquering peoples. Peoples always references the seas, um, out of the sea, out of the many peoples of the earth. Um, but rather, they're going to come to prominence by the development of land. And what, are, what, is, what would land? If the sea represents people, the land um, has to represent something else uh, other than peoples that would bring it to prominence and to uh, global power. And uh, I would contend that the use of the land is, is fairly literal and it's referring to the development of um, natural resources. So we're looking for a nation that came to prominence um, by the development of their natural resources. The farms, mines, factories, forests, um, waters, from all the natural resources available to it is, and by, uh, shall I use the word, exploiting them? <laughs> or at least putting them into real functionality for their benefit, um, this land is going to come, or this nation is going to come out of a land that it's going to come to prominence not by conquering other peoples, but by getting dominance over their natural resources, that this is how they're going to do it. And remember, in Daniel's view, they are going to displace three Roman nations to gain their territory. They don't destroy them. They simply make room for themselves within those three nations who identified those um, as France, uh, Spain, and Great Britain. Uh, we can see that we have a nation that, that did displace those three, as Daniel describes, little horn doing, um, that are the results or the residue of the Roman Empire, like the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. But this one's going to develop its natural resources and uh, do it very well so that it comes to great wealth and great power. And so that's how it rises up. It rises up not out of the sea conquering other peoples, but out of the earth conquering its natural resources. Now we find that it has two horns. This is the first time we've had two horns, right? Is there another prophetic beast with two horns? In Daniel, one empire had... Which one of these empires was represented by two horns? Which I left out. <laughs> the one I didn't put up there. How did I do that? That was a clerical error. By the way, in my Bible, in my Sunday school class, I found a clerical error. One of the passages you had us look up, it, it, had, it had the word had spelled H-A-B instead of H-A-D. It was weird. It must not be true then. Um, throw it away. Babylon, where, where's Media Persia is right here. Sorry about that. <laughs> Spell Media. 
Media Persia. So we have the Persian Empire um, there, and it's a two-horned beast because it has both the country, uh, the Medes, and the Persians, and they were brought together and made kind of one nation. And yet we have them recognizing the distinction between them. And so when you go through Daniel, um, who's ruling that Daniel's dealing with first? Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede. Then we have Cyrus the Persian. And so we have these individuals in the media, Median Persian Empire um, that were represented by a two-horned beast to Daniel. So when we come to a two-horned beast down here, um, what are we looking for? We are looking for some kind of an entity, a national entity, that has really two um, nations that are involved. That these two nations are going to act pretty much alike. That they're going to... Now, uh, Persia became the dominant nation, and yes, they did technically conquer Mede, the Medians, but they recognized that they are the same people group, and so they allowed them to co-rule. And so we're looking for uh, a dual nations that are in sync, that are in unison, that are walking together hand in hand and really co-ruling. And of course, this goes along with what the angel said, that the eighth head is related to the seventh head, that these two are going to form this, uh, maybe different than geopolitical, but certainly uh, there are geopolitical ties, but this other mysterious aspect of their relationship um, that we want to investigate here in a little bit. So we're looking for a nation with, that has this kind of connection to another. Uh, it then goes on and says, not only does it two horns, but he also says it's like a lamb. And what does the lamb represent to you all? It wasn't a lamb. It l was like a lamb. What'd you say? Innocence. Who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ. This is a, really a presentation of Christianity, of of the ones who, the the, the children of God. So it's going to look like it's going to be like a lamb. It's going to have these this little subdued horns, but it's going to look like a lamb, and. Uh, it's going to have the appearance of being Christian. And the, the idea there is that it is going to have this appearance. But it's going to speak like what? Like a dragon. And again, we talked last week um, when we were over here talking about changing created order and truth and words against God. We ask the question, how do nations speak? We speak through our documents, through constitutions, through treaties, through laws, through uh, judicial findings, we, we, or determinations. We, we find these legal aspects are how nations talk. 
And so, how does a nation say, we surrender at the end of the war? They get together in a railroad car somewhere in the middle of nowhere and they sign documents. Say, we surrender. And the other nations say, okay, here's the terms of your surrender. And uh, we're going to require this, 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 this. And, um, and that's how nations speak. They speak in their legal documents. And so what we're looking for is a nation that looks very, in appearance, like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. And, of course, the dragon and the lamb are two creatures we've already been introduced to, the lamb of God that came to heaven and the dragon which fought heaven. Right? We've already been introduced to those two symbols. One representing Christ, one representing Satan. And so we don't have to be real inventive here to recognize that this is one that has the appearance of a lamb, but it, looks like a, but it speaks like a dragon. And so it has that... that uh, the uh, message of the dragon. And so what is the message? What does it mean to speak like a dragon? Um, well, let's ask ourselves, let me ask you, how does Satan talk? How, how many times have you heard him talk? Not heard him, read about what he said, the content of his speech. What is Satan's speech like? Where have we seen it in the Bible? At least two places, three places. In the Garden of Eden, through the mechanism of the serpent. Where else? All right. At the temptation of Christ, we find an engagement between Jesus and Satan. Where else? One other place for sure. Job. Um, we don't find him talking to Job. We find the conversation between God and Satan, where Satan must come and give an account. So we have those three conversations to build off of. How does Satan talk? Oh, good word. There we go. We use that word, sly. What does that mean? Hidden meanings? Smooth. Smooth as butter, but as poisonous as hemlock. Does he speak words of truth? That's a trick question. Oh, that sounds like truth. So what did he say to Eve? You would be like God. Is that true? In reference to knowing good from evil? Okay. What else did he say to Eve? He, you're not really going to die. I mean, you're not going to eat the fruit and fall down dead. I mean, that's not going to happen. And wasn't that her experience that she died that day? Physically, she didn't. She began the process. Yeah, you're not going to die. Was that kind of true in the sense he wanted it to make it? <coughs> sure. Now, what about Jesus? We can go on and on about that, but let's go to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, doesn't the scripture say that, you, you know, you have your angels ministering spirits and won't let anything, any harm come to you? Did the Bible say that? Sure. He knows God's word. He can speak those words, but his application is horrible. He tests God with his own words. Isn't that amazing? Satan is an angel of light, the Bible says. Right? Wasn't he an angel of light? Wasn't that Satan? Was. You think he's still lightful now? No. You think he's red? 
No, I don't think he's red. He will be one day, but I don't think right now. So he comes to us knowing God's word, smooth in speech, sounds good, has some element of truth to it in our experience as physical beings, even though we, if we divorce ourselves from thinking about spiritual matters, um, on the physical side it sounds good. Uh, from the earthly perspective, how else did he talk to Jesus? Did he give him some pretty good offers? What did he offer Jesus? He offered him the beast, the nations. I'll give them to you. Because he knew he controlled them. Even though God was one that sets them up and tears them down, um, they were serving him. And uh, he says, I'll give you the nations. Great offer, right? Boy, that's, oh, that would be great. Now, I can, now we can resolve this once and for all. If we can just get Satan to exclude himself from the equation. But uh, the price tag for doing that was just about on worship me, wasn't it? Is that the price tag? Was that? I, I sometimes I get them a little confused. The different tests and what the requirement was. Turn this bread or the stones into bread and eat your eat for your meal. Um, he's testing God. We don't ever do that anymore at all, do we? Hey God, if you'll do this, then I'll know that you mean that. Kind of sounds like Satan more than anything else. So that's what. Go ahead. Yeah, always challenging. Always challenging the truth. Always challenging the obvious. Um, you're talking to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he can make the nations bow down to him anytime he wants. He doesn't need them from you. You're functioning on earth by his permission and uh, according to his limitations. But he acts like he's in charge. And so we're looking for speech that... Um, we're not looking for curses and and uh, uh, things like that. We're looking for something that's much more deceptive. Remember that this is the subtleness of this beast. Not violent, but subtle uh, undermining of truth, biblical truth. And so we go to historical documents, and I can go to our country's historical documents and see very powerful statements being made in our Constitution and our Bill of Rights uh, in the preamble that we were made in my day to memorize. Um, and I, I look at it and I say, well, is this biblical content? It sounds very biblical, does it not? Would you agree with that? It sounds biblical. After all, what does it affirm? Let's just take um, the preamble there. What does it affirm that sounds very Christian to us? There is a God. Does it affirm that? Yes. What did he do? He created. So that's a biblical truth, right? They, they're affirming a creator God. That's great. Right? We must be a Christian nation because our documents affirm a creator God. What did that creator God then do? And among them being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Can you give me chapter and verse for those, please? 
Now remember, what does the word inalienable mean? Cannot be... You can't be separated from them, right? You can't be alienated from this right. It is something that God gave you and you, that, that no man can take away. That was the idea they were trying to communicate, right? This is something God given to all men, not just Americans, but all men, that no one can take away. Um, now, in my experience, I kind of feel like men are able to take away your life. Would you agree with that? It seems to be pretty easy to do, in fact to separate us, to alienate us from uh, living, from being living beings. Now, um, someone made the statement to me, well, no, what the Founding Fathers meant was spiritual life in Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that, does it? And I ask you again, do all men have an inalienable right even to spiritual life in Jesus Christ? If we have a right to something, where is grace? What is the definition of grace? Giving you what you don't deserve. You don't deserve it. That's grace. So is even salvific eternal life a right for all men? Okay, it is, a, it is a possession that no one can take away for those who have received Christ, but that's not what they said. They said you were created with an inalienable right to life. This is their declaration. Is this biblical? Was Adam and Eve created, and the only ones that were created, Adam and Eve. So I, I'll just, let's just say that they were thinking only biblically, and everyone else was begotten. Every, only Adam and Eve were created by God's uh, direct act. And so everyone else begotten, including Jesus. So the only two created beings were Adam and Eve. Were they created with an inalienable, inseparable from themselves right to life? Did God ever give that to them? No, he took it away from them, remember? The access to life was removed from them, correct? The tree of life was guarded and eventually, I don't know what happened to it in the flood, but it was uh, inaccessible. So right away, one of our favorite statements in the document um, isn't in accordance with God's word. But it's attributing something to God that God never said. I'm pretty sure my Bible says that I have a right to die because I'm a sinner. Wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. This is, this is different. A gift is different than a right. Would you agree with that? So we have a very rights-driven, and I want to contend with you right now, that when we start declaring rights, we are speaking a lot more like the dragon than we are like Christ. And that's why I'm very careful in how many rights I attribute to man, uh, particularly that are endowed by God upon us, because if God gave them and no one can take them away, um, that's pretty potent. And yet I see people taking away life all the time. Now, if you're trying to say that you have a right to be a living being uh, to all men, which our founding fathers didn't really believe because many of them did, but they didn't practice what they preached. 
they had slaves of their own that were men. And uh, so they didn't even practice their own statement. So when we start talking about rights, we better be very careful about what we're saying right afterwards. I find very, very few of them in God's Word and almost very few that are positive. So we have the right to life, to liberty. What is liberty? Do you have a right to liberty? You can say, what, what's the opposite of liberty? To be slaves? Would you say slavery is kind of the opposite of liberty? To be enslaved? Would any slave describe themselves as at liberty? No. Okay. Um, imprisoned? Would that be a way to be not at liberty? Perhaps, to some degree. Um, what about um, being subject to sin? How does the Bible describe us in terms of our sin? Do we have a right to be free from it? We are in bondage to it. We are bound to it. So we, we don't find these rights, and we don't even get into happiness. I don't even think that's necessarily hardly and um, the pursuit of it, technically. And so when we look at this, we start seeing these things, and, and I can go on and list it, and we can get into a major discussion over American law, constitutional law, um, but I'm not the first one to raise my state hand and say, this stuff is, is not right. It's not true. Um, it certainly isn't biblical. Um, one of the greatest pr- opponents of the Constitution uh, among the early, uh, I almost said church fathers, fathers of our nation was Patrick Henry, um, who was the first was the governor of Virginia at the time. It's why Virginia took so long to ratify the Constitution, one of the last of the, of the states to do so. Um, and he took issue with pretty much every single part of our Constitution, starting with the first three words. What are the first three words? We the people. What are we thinking? Saying, we the people. Who do you think you are? <laughs> and from there, and by the way, he spent an hour and a half in session tearing that apart. Um, that the, the horrible idea that men will govern themselves in any way but selfishly. That's why we need the state. And... Um, so he just went right through it and tore it apart the Supreme Court. He predicted the Civil War. He predicted what we're experiencing today from the Civil Court, um, that the Civil Court, Supreme Court, that uh, they would start legislating. And uh, he just, Washington and he had bitter letter writing back and forth. Washington saying, what do we need to get you to do this? We can always amend it. We can always amend it. He's like, how can you amend something so flawed? So you might as well start over and write it right. And, uh, and then he was offered bribes. Uh, we'll make you the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. That was what he was offered. If he would just move Virginia to accept the Constitution. Um, and he says, why would I want to be the person that I'm just condemning in all of my, all my writings? Uh, I can't be trusted with that any more than anyone else can be trusted with that position. Uh, because he's given it 
uh, unbalanced power. And he also said something about the president. Um, and at least on two occasions, we have seen what he said about the president come to be. Once during the Civil War and once right now. And so we are under those conditions. Yeah, it was Abraham Lincoln. Um, that basically just made Congress irrelevant for several years. And so we, um, we have lots of warnings out there if we'll read them, but when you walk into most churches, and when I deal with my fellow pastors and I start introducing this idea that our country speaks like a dragon in its original documents and all of them following, I'm not saying that they were ungodly men that wrote them. I did not say that they implied all of this. They may have meant good, but... The end result is not a biblical Christian nation. These are not biblical principles. How does life come? It comes through Jesus Christ. Could they have implied that? Yes, but they didn't declare that. That's what we needed to declare. Um, Bill of Rights, number one. What a disaster that's created, huh? Now, I'm sure in the early... What they, what they were confronting was a press that was controlled by the state, which we see in many countries. What they were dealing with is persecution on people that believe differently than you within Christianity. If they really wrote what they intended it to mean, because they weren't exposed to what we're exposed to today, what they should have written is that you have the freedom to... Um, believe or to practice Christianity however you like. <laughs> and if that's what they meant, they should have said that. But I think that's probably what they meant, but it's not what they said. They said you have a freedom of religion. And we have the issues today um, that are being tossed about. So when we look at these things, well, freedoms are good, rights are good, and we have thrived on them as a nation but they have not produced within us this attitude that we are submissive to God. Have individual leaders directed us toward that? Absolutely. I do not question that. Um, that's not the nation. The nation isn't your president. The nation is this. These documents, they are your nation. How do you function? Um, we can talk about voting rights. We can talk about all those things. And you pick up your Bible and try to defend them. I challenge you to do that. Defend our nation biblically on what it's doing and how it's been doing and the basis on which it's been functioning. And I'll contend to you that in many instances, it is really speaking like a dragon. It is really communicating non-biblical statements in biblical language that has deceived most of us into thinking we're a Christian nation, particularly the founding fathers. So we're going to pick up. We haven't gotten very far in uh, this. Um, we saw the relationship there in verse 12. We've already really dealt with that. Um, and then we're going to pick up in verse 13 in two weeks. But we start seeing this drawn out and we're like okay we're looking for and I think this was a big one for me um, these were big uh, but uh, uh, 
when you really start, and I went about this pretty honestly, I was like, I am going to take the position that I can defend our nation as a biblically founded nation. Um, and that, you, after reading Patrick Henry's argumentation, and, uh, um, and I ended up going even farther than Patrick Henry would have gone in recognizing that this is not a biblical model of government. It was never sanctioned by God. Um, and, it was, and it's not representative of any model that God has put forward. Okay. So we're going to keep on the list of identifying the final empire. Of course, you know where I'm at, but uh, we're going to keep going right through the list here in chapter 13 in two weeks. Any questions tonight? Comments, questions? challenges. Yes, ma'am. Right. And we are strong allies. There's no doubt about that. Um, but in, the, in this element that we're going to talk about more when we get to the end of chapter 13, we're going to see this, this um, it's almost a secondary government it, it, that's under and behind uh, the, the front that we see of kings and presidents. And we're going to be looking at that and seeing how that connection is even stronger than our geopolitical connection with Great Britain. Much stronger. And much more enduring, to tell you the truth. Um, our, but our connection geopolitically, I think, is pretty obvious, too, that... Here's a country that we were at war with to make our to to create this nation, and yet um, how often have we ever not conformed to each other's needs and met them and and aided each other um, all the way through for the last 220 years, 250 years almost. Yes. Horns typically represent kings, and kings can stand for their nation, but not the other way around. So a head doesn't stand for a king, but a horn can stand for a king, which also represents a nation. So a king can stand as a representation of the nation, but the nation doesn't stand in representation of a king. So um, the, the example that we use out of Daniel is this two-horned beast. And uh, that one was, you know, was one reared up higher than the other side. Um, and that two nations, and there was really two kings involved here. There was two entities individually, but also as a geopolitical unit, they were still recognized as these are the Medes and these are the Persians, yet they ruled simultaneously but the Persians had the dominance. So the latter one had the dominance. And so, um, yeah, that's a struggle a little bit because kings can stand for nations, but I don't find it the other way around. So I don't see where heads would stand for people um, and horns for nations, which is how most of them have it. Um, and uh, 
And so therefore the ten horns that we see on the beast are going to be ten kings, the angel says, who have not yet received their kingdom. And um, so they can be representative of their kingdom as well as their kingship, but, does, but the other way around doesn't work. You can't say this head is uh, George Washington or this head is, I don't know which king of England you want to pick, uh, Henry VIII or something. Um, that doesn't work in the prophetic schematic of Daniel. Good question. Others. Okay, we'll keep plowing for the next in a couple of weeks and uh, keep moving forward. And I'm going to just build this list out, and uh, and we should be able to finish this up next week if if or in two weeks. Um,